hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Curiosities in Psychology. So today we're going to be discussing the psychology of living space. So we'll discuss where we live and the places that we live in and how these can relate to and influence our mental well-being. So today I'm joined by Jeff Malpas. Jeff is an Australian philosopher and is currently a professor at the University of Tasmania in Hobart and a visiting professor at La Trobe University in Melbourne. He was also founder and previous director of the University of Tasmania's Centre for Applied Philosophy and Ethics. So the book Place and Experience, which was written in 1999, established Jeff as one of the leading philosophers and thinkers of place and space. So Jeff has published over 100 journal articles and is the author or editor of 20 books, including his latest work called Rethinking Dwelling. So welcome, Jeff. Thank you, Lexi. Thank you for being here today. So I'm really interested to chat to you today and hear your thoughts on this topic of place, particularly on the psychology of where we live and how this can affect our mental well-being. But first of all, how do you actually define the concept of place? And I asked that initially because in your book, you kind of discuss um, how place is different to modern conceptions of place or how you describe it as differently. Um, so what's your actual definition of it? So very often when we think about place, we're, we're fairly ambiguous in how we use the term. Mm. We often use it to refer to just spatial position, yep. right? the sort of thing you can pinpoint on a map. Or you can say to somebody, where, where, where are you going to meet me? And you'll give them a location. Yep. Now, that is one sense of place, but it's really a sense of place as, if you're going to use a Latin term, place as locus, mm -hmm. okay? place as position. That's not the primary sense of place in, on, in my thinking. Mm -hmm. So we can distinguish them between place as a sort of being at, which would be being at a position, yep. and place as the sense of being in somewhere. Mm -hmm. And that second sense of place is what I think is much more important. Places have space, mm -hmm. right? So we're in this room now, and this room gives us space in which to talk yep. and to, to do things. Mm -hmm. So places always have space, and that's one of the differences between locations and real places, because locations are just points, I'm here, yep. right? Whereas when we say we're here, in this place, in this room, mm -hmm. what we mean is that we're engaged, we're engaged together in conversation, we are surrounded by a whole lot of things, we have a certain orientation to the street outside, to the larger building. Mm -hmm. So place now starts to seem like a much more complex notion and it includes space, but it's not identical with space. Yeah. Okay. In some languages, place and space aren't distinguished. Yeah. So French doesn't have a clear distinction between the two. That doesn't mean you can't make the distinction. It's just yep. that French tends to use the same words mm. to refer to both of them. So do you think that means they think about it differently because of the I languages? don't think they do. Yeah. You can talk about, I've talked about these issues to French speakers, French philosophers and yeah. psychologists, to, to Chinese philosophers, to um, German philosophers and psychologists, to Americans, mm -hmm. lots of people. So. Language is the way in which we express ideas, but that doesn't mean that the ideas are completely determined by the language, even though you can't express ideas without language, if you yeah. see what I mean. I do, that's true. I think there's a lot of words in English as well that we don't have, that we like yeah, feel certain right. emotions and things, but we don't have words for them. So how did you actually get on to, or what inspired you to write Place and Experience initially? A friend of mine always used to say um, that it was if you like, that we wrote about the things that we were most lacking, right? Mm -hmm. And I sort of thought maybe there's some sense to that in my case because um, my, ch my background was a little bit unusual in that we came from, um, we came from a show family mm -hmm. in that my family used to travel around selling things at, show, at shows, mm -hmm. showgrounds, fairs, yeah. right? We did, they did that in Australia and they did that in New Zealand. Mm -hmm. And so we're often moving around a lot. Mm -hmm. So I think that if you're moving like that, and so it's a sort of gypsy lifestyle. A lot of the people who work on the showgrounds, this is back in the 50s and 60s, mm -hmm. it, it would, some of them probably had gypsy background, real mix of people, and everybody just sort of traveled around. You lived in caravans and so on. Mm. And it seems to me that when you move around like that, you probably have a greater attentiveness to places. You're not separated from place, but you're more connected to them. Yeah. Or at least you're connected to a sense of what place is about. So I, I suspect for me, that was probably one of the factors in my background. Yeah. But the more immediate factor, and where place and experience begins, yeah. 
is actually with the um, poetry of Wordsworth. Mm -hmm. And Wordsworth is famous as a poet of place. Mm -hmm. He's not the only poet of place. There are some other very important ones who I also talk about. Uh, but I guess it was in Wordsworth's poetry, and particularly poems like um, Lines Composed Above Tintin Abbey, which is really about a specific place, mm -hmm. um, or Michael, which is one of the poems from the Lyrical Ballads, which is about this heap of stones yep. in the Lake District. Yeah. So it's really, it, there was a set, for me, what seemed to be there in Wordsworth was a real sense of the importance of place in human lives. Mm -hmm. And there's a very famous line which Seamus Heaney um, quotes from Wordsworth's Michael, in which he says of Michael that the landscape in which he lived, the, the landscape of Westmoreland, its hills and mountains and so on, um, were both humanised and humanising. Mm -hmm. So they have a human character and they make Michael the shepherd, who's the main character in the poem, mm -hmm. human. Mm -hmm. And that they're closer to him than his own flesh and blood. Mm -hmm. Right, so there's the sense of the landscape, the place, as being deeply bound up yeah. with what the, the character in the poem is, with mm. his very being. And that's a really important idea in Wordsworth. Wordsworth had a complicated set of ideas about place that change over his, his writing. Um, but, but that idea of the sense of place is very important to Wordsworth. Um, he, it, the Lake District is particularly important. Wordsworth himself um, contributes enormously to the establishment of Lake, the Lake District as a significant place, even a touristic place. Mm -hmm. And many of the other romantic poets, of which he's one, similarly also have this interest in place. Mm -hmm. And so place and experience came out of this idea that place is important, that place somehow makes us what we are, yeah. and the desire mm -hmm. to show how one would understand that in philosophical <coughs> terms, which also means psychologically as well. Yeah. Um, and what it means, what are the implications of that. Mm. If we are shaped by places, if we're made by place, then what does that mean for what we are as human beings? Mm. Yeah, interesting. So let's discuss more um, the psychology perspective of place. You mentioned like just then, but also in the book, there is a bit of overlap between psychology and philosophy in the sense that you discuss how places changed by our emotions and experiences and um, memories and things like that. Um, can you expand on that and explain specifically how place is shaped by our own experiences and our own perceptions? One of the first things that I, I worked on as a philosopher, um, even as a, uh, for instance, in my, my PhD work and so on, was around the idea of, of not an internalist approach to what human beings are, what the mind is, not a Cartesian approach, but rather what some what used to be referred to in those days and still is sometimes as an externalist approach. Mm -hmm. And according to that approach, what's in our minds, our memories, our feelings, our thoughts, these are not just made what they are by internal connections. They're made what they are by our connections to the external world. Yeah. So if we didn't have those connections, we wouldn't have thoughts, mm -hmm. we wouldn't have memories, we wouldn't have feelings, and not just because there wouldn't be the causes to give rise to them, mm -hmm. but there wouldn't be anything for them to be about. Yeah. So what our ideas, memories, feelings, and so on are about are real world contents. Mm -hmm. And this idea has become very common within contemporary cognitive science. Mm. It's this idea that thinking isn't something that takes place inside our heads, yeah. using thinking to refer to all sort of mental activity. Mm. It's actually something that takes place in the world. Mm -hmm. And so our mental lives are not internal, even though we think about them as internal. They're actually things that go on out in the world. Mm. That means they involve our, the place in which we are. What about culture in relation to place? How does culture affect the places that we're in and how do the places that we're in affect culture as well? So culture is a difficult term because it's not always clear what people mean by culture mm -hmm. and it's often thrown around without much sense of what it might mean as well. Mm -hmm. I think the important thing about culture though is that it is collective. It's something we all share in. You can only have culture genuinely if you've got externality. So without externality, there would be no culture, just the same as there would be no content. Mm. And so the way we're able to share things, um, the, way we, the way culture develops, is fundamentally through 
language, but also through urban planning, mm -hmm. the way we build our streets, through the, the, the symbols, the objects that we all relate to, mm -hmm. through places that we attach common memories to. Mm -hmm. right? I mean, one of the interesting issues is how collective memory is possible, because we do have collective memories. Mm -hmm. Well, it happens largely because memory gets externalised in things. Yeah. So we might both have memories, let's say, of that church over there, and we can talk about that church mm -hmm. because we've got common memories about it. Yeah. You know, we don't have to have the same memories. The memories might overlap. Maybe you have memories from a shorter period than I have. But still, our memories are encoded in the building, in the, in the concrete material form. Mm -hmm. And that's the real basis for culture. Mm -hmm. You know, similarly, when music, dance, um, artworks, uh, stories, all of these are the externalised forms in which culture really has its life. Mm -hmm. So culture doesn't live inside our skulls. Again, it lives out in the world. Mm -hmm. And that's how it can be common to all of us. Yeah. Yeah, great. So let's move on now to the language and discussing language um, in relation to space. So can you give an example of how language can reinforce or challenge cultural understandings of place and the relationship between language and place? Questioning is absolutely fundamental here. Mm. Um, it's fundamental philosophically as well. Yeah. And we often don't think about what questioning is. Mm -hmm. What we do when we ask questions is we really ask us, we're really asking ourselves or others to think about where we are. Mm -hmm. So questioning always ends up having this topological, this place attentive character. Mm -hmm. To ask a question is to say, are you where you thought you were? And how did you get here? And where do you want to go? Almost every question is like that. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, not necessarily in the sense of navigating in space yeah. in the usual way we think about it, um, but in the sense of orientation, mm -hmm. in the sense of working out where we are. And you see, I should say here that that means that for me, place and space aren't to be simply identified with the places that we, you know. Hobart's a place, but it's, there are other sorts of places. There can be imagined places, there can be places <coughs> of all sorts, mm. okay? So do you think that place influences language? We gain access to places into the world only in and through language. Mm -hmm. So place, language and world are all bound up together. Yeah. So in Place and Experience, you also discuss how places are not simply static objects, but they're constantly changing and evolving in response to our interactions with them, which was, we've already kind of discussed. But can you give a specific example of a place that's undergone significant changes due to human interactions? And what implications does that have for our understanding of place? Um, well, because places are always changing, just about any place you look at will have changed according to human interaction. But one of the interesting things about places, I think, is that they both change and don't change. Mm -hmm. uh, so. Indigenous thinking very often emphasises the perduring character of place, the fact that places um, are in some sense eternal. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is particularly important, for instance, when it comes to certain sacred sites, mm -hmm. which in one sense remain even when they are damaged, even when they are ignored. And so one of the senses of place that I use is the sense of place as the fundamental structure of our being in the world. And that never changes. Mm. Specific places, the sorts of places to which we often give names, Hobart, um, Macquarie Street, um, the Watso building in which we are, mm -hmm. they can change. Mm -hmm. And they will change sometimes quite radically as we intervene. We knock buildings down. We um, redevelop cities. Um, you know, in Hobart, I guess one of the, the big issues we have at the moment about a changing place is Macquarie Point, mm -hmm. a place that has already changed significantly, mm -hmm. um, where changes were supposed to have happened, nothing much seems to have happened for a long time, and where now we have a proposal for a massive change, not only to that place, yes. but to the city, mm. and possibly even to the island. Mm. And that seems to be being viewed as simply a change to be understood in terms of a certain sort of business deal that appears to have been done um, and a set of commercial and other considerations. Mm -hmm. um, 
for me, in a place like Hobart, putting a huge stadium, and if you've seen the plans, it's a really big it's building. It's huge, <laughs> yep. And plonking it on what is otherwise a fairly fragile mm. and problematic section of land mm-hmm. right near the waterfront is a massive change for a place. We don't seem to, none of the planning, insofar as there has been any planning that's gone into this, seems to pay, give any attention to that. Yeah. The only considerations are commercial considerations. Now, I think that's man- that manifests not just a set of local problems and local issues, but it also manifests a tendency that we have to simply think of places, particularly when we want to do things with them to them, as just spaces. Mm. They're the sorts of things you can lay out on a map. Mm. And you can say, yeah, we'll put that there, there's space there. Yeah. And pay little attention to the way in which that will change the fabric of the place. Mm. Right? Yeah. And places are like that. Places are not separate. They're always embedded within other places. This is one of the reasons they're so dynamic and changing. If we wanted to, we could do a sort of topological analysis of this room. Mm -hmm. And we could think not just about the room as a place, but we could think about, you know, the small places within it. Um, There aren't any cupboards in here. Bachelard quite likes cupboards. Oh, there's one over there. So, (laughs) you know, the cupboard is a whole place of its own. Mm -hmm. Um, The corner might be a place. Mm -hmm. When we're kids, we're much more attuned to the multiplicity Mm. of places in this. Because, you know, that's one of the great things as kids. It's really fun to find little Mm. cubby holes and strange places, out-of-the-way places. So I like to say of architecture, architecture is often referred to as Mm placemaking. No. Architecture doesn't make places. Mm -hmm. Architecture responds to places. The place is given already. Mm -hmm. The question then is what the architect's going to do with it. Yeah. Um, So when we intervene in places, we can sometimes change those places drastically, but we can certainly change the character of the place. We can sometimes damage places so much. The original place is very hard to discern. Mm -hmm. And you can think of of places of trauma, for instance. Mm -hmm. The obvious examples are places like Auschwitz, Mm -hmm. we have places that are a little bit like that here. Mm -hmm. Um, Places of incarceration, um, Willow Court up at New Norfolk, um, the Orphan School Mm -hmm. here in Newtown, places that have been radically changed. They're the same places in an important sense, and yet they've been had imposed on them this layer of of traumatic memory, traumatic experience, mm. and that becomes part of the place. They definitely have a different feel when you go to a place that is like Willow Court or something. Um, it does feel different. Do you think that's because we know what's happened there and the memories that we have? What do you think spaces themselves have different feels? Well, I do think they have different feelings. Yeah. But that's because I'm what I call a romantic materialist. Mm-hmm. I think that the romantic, that is, feeling, memory, thinking, idea, Mm -hmm. um, are always embedded in the material, Mm -hmm. in the stuff around us, in stone and wood and brick and soil and whatever, right? And I also think that stone and brick and wood and soil and things like that carry those romantic elements within them. Mm -hmm. They carry memories. Mm -hmm. So when you go to a place like Willow Court or the Orphan School and you walk around there, What you're seeing in that place are structures that carry memories within them because they carry, amongst other other things, patterns of activity, right? So you don't always have to get some talk to somebody else to find out what they remember. Sometimes you can find those memories just by walking around the place Mm. and getting to feel how it was to be in that place. Sometimes all you get are echoes of the past, echoes of what's remembered there because too much of the site has been lost. Mm. This is one of the reasons why the the preservation of those sites can be important because in preserving the site, we're preserving the memories that the site encodes. Mm. So I think places, of course, do have memories, do have feelings that are part of the place. Mm. And we can say that without having to... Um, invoke any sort of strange supernatural idea. Yeah. Okay. I'm even happy to say that buildings can be haunted. Mm-hmm. Right. Because what those because the haunting is part of the very it's part of the stonework. It's part of the the, the timber work. It's mm-hmm. part of the way the building is structured, um, and part of the way too in which what happened in those places very often continues in the behaviours and attitudes of the people around them. So when we think about these sorts of things about the idea of a sense of place or about the idea even of certain places as possibly being haunted. Um, 
We can make good sense of that once we realise, as I said right at the beginning, that things like feelings, um, thoughts, memories, aren't just inside our skulls. Mm -hmm. They're out there in the world. Mm -hmm. And so it's not surprising that we find them in places. Yeah. Because that's where they are. Yeah, yeah. Let's discuss that again from a more psychological perspective. So we kind of discussed how places are not static um, themselves and evolve in response to our interactions and how they affect our mindsets. But let's talk more specifically about that. So on a more surface level, we know, for example, that being out in nature has a lot of health benefits um, for our mental health, that it makes us uh, concentrate better and it can make us happier, reduces stress and anxiety. Um, and there are also a lot of physiological benefits such as like, reducing blood pressure and things like that. But a lot of the time we don't spend most of our days outdoors. We spend a lot of our days inside office buildings. And a lot of these are designed pretty poorly in relation to our mental well-being because a lot of them don't have lots of windows or they're um, just great big cement buildings that are made for the purpose of fitting as many people in there as possible. So what are your thoughts on how the places that we're physically in can change our own mindsets? Um, well, they will change our mindset necessarily, Definitely. given everything I've said before. Yeah. And there's, it means that there's a really important role for architects mm. who it turns out are really sort of like psychologists, or they should be. Yeah. There is this, as you've said, there's this really important connection between um, mental and physical well-being mm. and the places and spaces in which we live. Mm. If we live in bad buildings, we're going to live bad lives, mm. quite simply. Yeah. Um, and that's important because it means that if we want to leave aside the workspaces in which we live, if we really want to address um, health issues across a population, and we don't address fundamental issues like housing, mm -hmm. we're going to get nowhere. <clears throat> yeah. That's why in a place like, like Hobart in Australia today, housing has to be seen as a fundamental issue. It's a fundamental mm -hmm. health issue apart from anything else. Yeah, and until we address that, we're not going to get anywhere with anything else, or at least all the other problems will be multiplied, mm. will be made much worse. Yep. And so it seems to me that if, if we had genius governments who were really thinking about this, then housing would be our number one priority because yep. until we address housing, we will not be able to adequately address the medical or educational issues that we also have. Mm. And that really means all sorts of changes, mm. changes in how we think economically about housing, but also changes in how we build them build houses yeah. um, to some extent and the architecture that we employ as well. So there's a whole lot to say about that. Mm. But when it comes to the, the places in which we work, then the problem with many of those places is that they're not designed, as you say, with our well-being in mind. They're designed with other things in mind, typically the well-being of our, the corporation or the institution which are, and institutions are increasingly now driven by one thing and one only, which is cost reduction mm -hmm. and profit maximisation. Mm -hmm. um, and you see that not just in commercial premises, you see that also in educational institutions. Mm. It's what drives the University of Tasmania, which seems to have abandoned not just a concern with physical or mental well-being for its staff and students, but also genuine considerations of, of of education, of mm. teaching or of research. Yeah. And if we think about the educational context, I think that's quite important because there are, if you like, two models of education, one of which we might say genuinely takes account of place and the other doesn't. One model of education mm. is the vocational training one, which sees education as about the transfer of information. Mm -hmm. And the model that usually goes with that is a let's say, a displaced model or a, a model that doesn't pay attention to place because it thinks that you can transfer information quite effectively. Mm -hmm. um, all you need is basically a computer or some other digital device and you yep. put the person in front of it and you feed the information in. Yep. They might have to do a, some you know, active learning and so on and so forth. And it doesn't really matter where you do that. Mm -hmm. right? They can do it in their bedroom. Yeah. The other model of education says that, well, education isn't about the transfer of information. You can have all the information in the world and not know what to do with it. Mm -hmm. um, just as an aside, this, I think, is one of the problems about the contemporary AI debate. Mm -hmm. AI systems can have all the information in the world and yet still not have any understanding. Yes. 
So if education is about understanding, it's mm. not just about information, but knowing how to use it, knowing when it's significant and how it's significant, mm -hmm. then that's a very different matter. And for that, you need interaction with other people, because mm. that's how you learn those sorts of things. And that means you need spaces in which you can talk to people, in which you can reflect about on yourself. And if, as I said earlier, thinking is always, and questioning is always a matter of working out where we are, mm -hmm. it actually helps if where you physically are <laughs> is conducive to that being done. Yeah. So when we talk about mental well-being, we talk about physical well-being, we might talk about intellectual and educational well-being, and all of these are tied together. Mm. So I think if we were genuinely thinking about our workspaces, we would be attending, for instance, to the way in which those workspaces, well, we would be attending, let me put it a different way, to the way in which the workspaces constrain and shape the activities undertaken within them. Mm. So if you put somebody in a square box, with a desk and a table, then you're giving them very limited capacities to interact and you're constraining their activities in certain sorts of ways. If you put them in a different sort of environment, maybe one where they can change aspects of it, they can open a window if they want, they can move the table around, they have other ways, they can talk to somebody. You give them more control over their space. Mm -hmm. Now we know that for any complex activity or task, People who have the capacity to determine how they will do that task are going to be people who will perform the task better. Mm -hmm. Okay, So if we give people spaces that are less well defined, where they have the resources, but where they've got some capacity to shift things around, they will probably perform better in that space. Mm. Open plan offices are not well suited to that. Mm. Right, Spaces where people can have a bit of privacy are probably better suited to that if you're working in an office environment. Yeah. In terms of the mental health in that space, having connections with the outdoors are probably important as well. Mm. We know that in hospital settings, patients generally do better when they have pleasant views outside their window, yep. typically views of greenery. Yep. Actually helps to have trees and stuff around. Yeah. And where there's a sense of connection to the outdoors. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I would argue that that probably holds true for workspaces as well, particularly if you want people to do creative work. Mm. Um, and then there are a whole lot of much more mundane issues about, about how we design workspaces in terms of what sort of, what the atmosphere is like, what sort of, um, what sort of facilities are provided in terms of the types, types of things you sit on, whether, what sort of other spaces you provide. Do you provide spaces for people to congregate mm. informally? Again, in universities, one of the things that's disappeared over the last 30 years have been tea rooms. Yeah, brings yeah. people together. It's really important for mental well-being, yeah. physical well-being too, because people get up yeah. out of their desks and start walking around. Mm. And for intellectual well-being, educational well-being, because they get to talk to people and that's how they get challenged, mm. how they get new ideas, how they consider the possibility of alternative perspectives. Mm. I mean, I suspect that one of the reasons why there's been such an increase in social fragmentation and division over recent years isn't just the fact of social media on its own, mm. which serves as an echo chamber and amplifies extreme views, mm. but also because a lot of people who spend time on social media are spending time in one place, either in front of a screen or maybe sitting with their phone. Mm. And the, the nature of the interaction is really limited. Mm. You're not having to go out and talk to somebody face to face. You're not having to do different things. Yeah. You're not having to be in different environments. Mm. And so our whole perspective, the place in which we are is constrained. And as the place is constrained, we become constrained as well. Yeah, <clears throat> that made me think of, um, I was thinking more about working from home as well, because a lot of people these days do have the option to work yep. from home. And I don't know when during COVID I was studying at home full time, but it was just in my bedroom at a desk and it was very hard to distinguish between that workspace and rest space. Yeah. So COVID was very interesting, actually, in terms of the way in which it brought it should have brought us back to think more about the places in which we live. Mm. Um, so from my perspective, from the perspective, perspective of a philosophical topologist, mm. COVID was a really interesting phenomenon, mm. partly because the, the topology, the isolation of individuals in their homes made also, resulted in all sorts of changes to mm. how we think and how we act. Definitely. Um, but also it disrupted things like the way in which we think about work. Mm. 
people have often said if you're going to have a workspace at home it's really important to separate the spaces yeah. so that you've got a clear sense of going to work yeah and that means going to a different place mm. not just getting out of bed and then sitting at the desk yeah, at the other end step. of the room yeah because then it's not clear what's as you say what's rest space and what's workspace what's mm. home space and what's workspace yeah so being able to differentiate spatially between different activities is an important element in being able to distinguish between those activities mm. and in being able to, to distinguish between different aspects of one's life. Yeah. When there's a small space, it's very difficult to do that. Mm. And this isn't just a problem that, are, that you can see in COVID cases and during COVID. It's also a problem that arises when people are in straitened circumstances, when they're living in poverty. Mm. Um, you know, if you're living in a caravan or in a tent, how do you, how do you organize? I mean, you have to exercise enormous discipline in order to be able to segregate that space. Mm. Now, people do it, mm. soldiers do it. It's one of the things that we train soldiers to do, mm. to be really meticulous about separating out different spaces, even if they're just the spaces in their pack. Yeah. Right, because that helps to give you differentiation and organisation in your life and activities and even in your thinking. Mm. But it's very hard to do, and most of us aren't trained at doing that. Mm. So I think COVID raised all sorts of issues because many companies saw this as an opportunity to reduce costs again by simply shifting the costs of maintaining an office onto the worker mm. so that the worker actually maintains the office space you don't have to do that anymore mm. um, again the university shut down its all its buildings it saved huge amounts of money as a result yeah. um, and i think part of that fed into some of the decisions in the university of tasmania's move into the city mm. and the decision not to have office spaces and not mm. to have lecture theaters yeah but again you have to think about so this is a significant spatial reconfiguration Mm. If you're changing the spaces and the places, how are you changing the sorts of things that can be done? Mm. And how are you changing the people themselves? Because that is a change in people. It might be a small change, mm. but it will change the way people think, mm. the way people learn, the way people respond. Mm. Um, it will change people's lives, minds, yeah. Yeah. themselves. So all of these changes have to be understood against this background of the emplaced character of human life mm. um, the trouble is we don't very often have those sorts of considerations being taken account of mm. yeah just to go back to what you said about education um it's also known that people who do exams and things in the spaces that they studied in do a lot better than if you yeah. study somewhere else so that's another implication for why we should have these specific spaces like lecture theatres and things that we can go to and learn in and then do the exams in because there are better outcomes than it's proven. Yeah. Um, and yeah. the, le the lecture theatre, I mean, there is a tendency now to argue that lectures are that pointless. You don't learn anything in lectures. Mm. Well, actually you do. Mm. But some of the things that you learn aren't the things that people um, focus on when they talk about this. Mm. They're teaching you, if they're really good, maybe even some things about what it is to be a human being, right? So that you will be getting a whole lot of other knowledge and understanding from and the encounter with a good teacher. Mm. <clears throat> um, you won't get that from an encounter with your laptop, yeah. nor from your computer, mm. nor from your mobile phone. Yeah. Um, let's move on to discuss, um, your, in your latest book, Rethinking Dwelling, it talks more specifically about the places where we dwell or where we live and argues that um, our current understanding of dwelling has been reduced to a narrow understanding of housing and that this has negative consequences for our sense of place and sense of belonging, I guess. So can you expand on that? Yeah. So, I mean, this is not an idea that is original to me. I mean, that book, Rethinking Dwelling, begins with this discussion of the work of the German philosopher Martin Heidegger, who gives this talk um, just after the war in 1951, Darmstadt, Germany, called Building Dwelling Thinking, in which he basically says, you know, the crisis of dwelling is not a crisis about the lack of houses, even though we have a lack of houses. Mm there's a more fundamental problem. Mm -hmm. And that is, we're not really thinking about, we're not really attending to what it is to live somewhere, mm -hmm. what it is to be in a place. Mm. And so that's the idea that that book really tries to pick up and to develop. Yeah. 
Um, now, of course, the, the problem of housing, as we've indicated in some of the things we've, we've talked about already, the problem of housing can be a way of getting at this problem of place. Mm -hmm. But if we treat the problem of housing as just a problem of, you know, providing boxes for people to live in, yep. then we're going to miss the point. Yeah. Right. Um, so, so the problem of how we find ourselves in the world is not just a problem of housing in the mundane sense. It's not just a problem of building shelters for people. We need to do that. Mm -hmm. But we also need to realise that providing housing is more than just a matter of building shelters. Mm -hmm. It's about enabling people to find a place in the world. Mm -hmm. And that means we have to be addressing everything. Yeah. We have to be thinking about the problem of housing as it's connected to problems of healthcare, of education, of um, enabling people to develop a sense of self-worth and self-identity. Mm -hmm. These are absolutely basic things and they're all about how people find a place for themselves, mm -hmm. right? Um, and how people find a place for themselves, of course, is worked out materially. So again, you can't just do it by giving pe people a pamphlet and saying, go on, just read that, you'll learn everything you need to know. Yeah. You've got to provide the spaces, the architecture, that will enable that to be possible. Mm. And so the problem of dwelling is a problem of housing, in one sense, not the mundane problem, but this more fundamental problem. Yeah. It is a problem of urban architecture. Mm -hmm. It is a problem of educational um, organisation structure. All of these things come together. Mm -hmm. So if we were really to take up this question of dwelling, which I think of as the question as to how we are to live in the world and how we are to find ourselves in place, then we really have to first start thinking about what a place is and what it is to be in place. Mm -hmm. And that's a more complicated question than just how are we going to build something to keep the rain off you. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Even though that will be part of it, providing shelter is part of it, it's also much more than that. And I think one of the problems, again, is that we don't think in that way. We tend to approach this sort of thing in terms of the bare physical necessities. Mm. We don't think of the way in which that's connected to these other more complex issues. Mm. We tend to always think of it in terms of just commercial issues and opportunities yeah. and in fact most of these things operate against a commercial background that is primary for the most part. Mm. Um, let's talk specifically about architecture. You mentioned that before and the design of homes and our mental health in relation to these. Um, so we kind of touched on this before but how things like um, having lots of lighting helps and that makes us um, having open spaces makes us feel more creative and more productive than if we're living in a or working in a small enclosed space um, that's dark and dark spaces can also induce anxiety and depression and things like that so it makes a big difference um, and it's also known that lighting directly affects um, the hormones so um, serotonin is released also when we've indirect sunlight. So from that perspective um, what do you think the impact is on our minds and on the spaces that aren't designed based on what's best for us or based on what's best for that space. So architecture often has a fairly, fairly narrow range of factors that it considers, mm. particularly contemporary architecture. I mean, there are certainly architects who have been much more attuned to questions of place. There are whole traditions of architecture that are focused on those sorts of things. Um, contemporary architecture has tended to be driven by often commercial and economic considerations, mm -hmm. and often by considerations that are much more internal to architecture as a profession. At least that's true um, for a lot of institutional and public architecture and for many of the big name architects. Mm -hmm. And there's a tendency too for architecture to see itself as fundamentally oriented towards, towards a, a set of aesthetic considerations very often. Um, where those aesthetic considerations are at a remove from the actual use of buildings and the way in which buildings engage with human beings. And I think there's something of division within architecture, at least in terms of the way in which it's thought of academically and sometimes within the practice, between approaches that see architecture as fundamentally about engaging with place and so with human beings, and there is a tradition of humanistic architecture within modernist architecture that mm -hmm. matches that, and a view of architecture that says architecture is really about 
a much more abstract engagement with architectural form mm -hmm. and actually has little to do with people at all. Mm -hmm. In fact, I know some architects and architectural theorists who think that actually the best buildings are the ones that never get built because the built building is really just a sort of faint echo of what <clears throat> was really in the architect's mind and that's mm -hmm. what we should be really focused on. So there are different strands within architecture but it seems to me that if we were to think about architecture in a more fundamental way, which is more or less what I try and do in the book, mm. then we would think about architecture as indeed about the way in which built form has a, a direct and immediate role in shaping minds, lives and human selves. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't think that's common amongst a lot of architects and very often architects are much more um, preoccupied with more mundane issues about meeting planning regulations, about you know the cost, the budget for the project. I actually think though there shouldn't be a barrier to doing that. I mean even when you're trying to do architecture on a budget I don't think there's any reason why you can't pay attention to the way your building will affect the people who live in it yeah. or work in it. That should be a really simple consideration mm. and that's why um, psychology and architecture ought to have a really close connection. Mm. I actually, um, I work with um, a cognitive psychologist at um, the Salk Institute in the US, um, mm. Sergei Gepstein. He actually focused uh, his specialization is um, perceptual cognition. Mm -hmm. um, but he's also interested in architecture. Yeah. And his particular interest is in finding ways of opening up conversations between architects and cognitive scientists psychologists, and psychologists so that architects can better understand the physio physiology and the neurophysiology mm. that underlies people's responses to buildings mm. and that buildings really need to take account of and design really needs to take account of. Mm. Um, now, Sergei's particularly focused, as I said, on visual perception. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's something that's very high up in the yeah. um, interest of many architects. But it also relates to things like acoustics. Mm. Um, and also, it seems to me, fundamentally, to things like our proprioceptive abilities. Mm -hmm. So the most, the basic way in which we find and experience places and spaces is through our bodies, yeah. through, um, through touch, mm. but also through the sense of sense of, of space and of movement yeah and you can get that in lots of different ways through the sense of the height of a ceiling yeah through the feel of a floor under your feet mm. through the spacing of the treads on a stairway through mm. the incline of a slope by how close the walls are mm -hmm. um, all of these are proprioceptive yeah. issues because they affect how you comport your body mm. um, how you react how you move yourself mm. So all of these things are really important and ought to be really important for architects. Mm -hmm. Now, Sergei's interest is how we might establish conversations between architects and psychologists and cognitive scientists, but also how we might educate architects in these sorts of things. Yeah. And that's a really difficult question because mm -hmm. architects generally don't have a lot of education in that area. Yeah. They're not trained as scientists and that means they often have difficulty in, in understanding or accessing scientific um, results in these sorts of areas. And there are also limits too on how relevant some scientific information can be. I mean you don't need to know all of the details of the way in which the, the visual perceptual system works yeah, no. in order to be able to understand what aspects are important yeah. in the design of a building. Mm. But I think that there's an important point there that lies behind Sergei's interest and that is that we probably do need architects to have a much wider knowledge mm. of, I would argue, not just um, physiology and psychology as it relates to built form, but also cultural um, and other meanings that relate to your form as well. You might argue a lot of architects do have that because they're embedded within an architectural tradition and that tradition often does carry mm. many of that, that information, but not always. Mm. Um, so one of the things I would argue for is the need for a more comprehensive or a broader education on the part of architects, mm. rather than an education that very often nowadays seems increasingly oriented toward technical skills 
um, and they're important, CAD schools, um, mm -hmm. sometimes scripting schools and so on, uh, and often too a familiarity with an architectural vocabulary rather than necessarily a capacity to engage with the philosophical ideas that very often lie behind that vocabulary. Because mm -hmm. architects do like to draw on philosophers quite often, but not always with good results. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there's a lot of room for greater education for architects, but also for all of us to be more interested in architecture, because mm -hmm. most of us aren't. Mm -hmm. We often just let architects do their own thing. Yeah. Uh, and. We don't have a very live architectural discourse, certainly not in a place like Hobart. Some years ago, we had a state architect, um, and that, was, he, that position was really important. Mm -hmm. The position was uh, abolished um, by the government of the time because I think the state architect was seen as a barrier to development, mm -hmm. primarily because he was doing, and I knew him quite well, we worked together, because what he was trying to do was to broaden the architectural discourse so that we started talking more about architecture and place, architecture mm -hmm. and health, mm -hmm. all of these sorts of things. Mm. And that was simply not conducive to what are essentially the commercial and political interests that really drive a lot of what happens in relation to architecture and in relation to the places and spaces around us. Mm. And if we're going to get anywhere, not just with the design of places and spaces, but with all those other fundamental issues that are tied up with the design of places and spaces, then we've really got to start shifting our focus away from, or our perspective has got to become a bit broader than the rather narrow and usually uninformed commercial and political framework that we employ. Now, I'm not sure if that answers your question, but... It does. Um, I was going to ask as well, has Sergey in the US, have they done much research or many studies on psychology and architecture or are they? Oh, there's been a lot of work on psychology and architecture very in the last decade or so. Mm. Partly because of the develop developments in AI mm. and also because of developments in neuroscience. Mm. So as we've come to understand so much more about human perceptual processing and cognition, uh, and, a, and a whole lot more about human thought processes generally, mm. many architects and, and theorists of architecture have become very interested in the way in which neuroscience can help us, as it were, design better buildings, if you like. Mm -hmm. So the last question is, I ask this at the end of every podcast, what, is, what do you think is the most interesting fact to do with psychology or philosophy or something to do with them combined? Could be to do with living spaces or just a general fact? <laughs> It's a difficult question for me it's because you question. use this word fact and philosophers are notorious for saying, mm, what did you mean by fact? Most interesting thing. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, what, I do know what you mean. Um, philosophers aren't very good on interesting facts, I suppose, because we tend to like things to be more complicated. <laughs> um, what I'm constantly surprised, what not surprised by, but the thing I find most interesting is the fact that some... As soon as you, as soon as, if I start to talk to people about these issues of place, almost everybody understands it, mm -hmm. right? Most people say, yeah, I know places are really important to me, and then they'll tell me a story, mm -hmm. right? So we understand how embedded we are in place. Mm -hmm. Then the really interesting question, if it's not a fact, is why don't we do anything about it? Yeah. How is it that we can be so aware of the places in which we live? Mm that we can know that they matter to us, and yet we can ignore them. Yeah. Can you describe a place that you find really rich or meaningful, and what it is about the place that gives you that feeling? Oh, um, well, I guess when I first came to Tasmania, I found that this was true of Tasmania. Um, I'd not been here before. I came here for an interview, for a job interview, for the chair of philosophy. Um, and it was partly because Tasmania was so similar to where I grew up, to New Zealand. And that, that, it was a bit like coming home and in fact coming back to a place that I'd left because Tasmania, when I came here in the late 90s, was a bit like New Zealand as it wasn't then anymore, mm. but as it had been when I'd been growing up. 
And part of what struck me about has struck me about Tasmania is the strong sense of place that is characteristic of the island. Mm -hmm. And for a philosopher who's interested in place, that means that this place is really interesting and special. Mm-hmm. So Mark Twain is famous for having said that uh, Tasmania was both heaven and hell. It was both a paradise and it was also an awful place. <clears throat> yeah. And that there's something to it. it. Tasmania's fraught history is part of its character as a place. The fraught history maybe is, a, is tied up with its island character, with the fact that it's at the end of the world. Lots of places that are on the margins like that seem to bring together extremes. I think that's certainly true of Tasmania. Mm. So for me, Tasmania is an incredibly interesting, important um, and valuable place because of what it tells us about place. And because here, place is so close. You know, if, if you if you didn't know what a place was, come to Tasmania and you'll find that, mm-hmm. <laughs> at least if you keep your eyes and ears open. Mm-hmm. Um, but then again, I come back to that that question or that fact that I put to you a few minutes ago, which is, so how come in this place, which is so obviously a place, which has so much about it as a place, how come it can be so disregarded, neglected, damaged? Mm. How come this is also the place that, you know, it it seems like we're going to be the last place in Tasmania where there's still native logging going on, Mm. right? I mean, How can we be a place that's so important, so obviously an important place, and yet so ignored, so neglected, so prone to destruction, so prone to just being used? Mm -hmm. That's the real, you know, it's a real paradox, it's a real problem, it seems to me, in thinking about Tasmania Mm -hmm. in relation to the mining industry, the logging industry, and just the way we seem to not bother paying attention to the character of the city. Um, so yeah, I think I'd have to say Tasmania is a big place. Yeah. Um, just because it's so rich for somebody who's interested in place. Yeah. And this is also, I think, why it spawns, why it gives rise to so many people mm. who's, who artists and writers uh, and others whose work is so much tied up with the character of place, with the idea of place. I mean, many of the people who I know here, uh, that is the primary focus of their work. Mm. Um, so, so thank you for the questions. That's so good. Thank you so much for coming in today, Jess. I really appreciate it. Um, there's a lot left to think about there. That <laughs> um, hopefully the more we discuss these topics and um, the more we chat about, especially architecture and psychology, hopefully more will be done about it in the future. Yeah. <laughs>